You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome to the Doctors of Running Virtual Roundtable, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we're putting on our feet. It is episode number 91 today, and we have a full roundtable. We have Matt Klein, if you've heard of him. We have David Salas, we have Andrea Myers, and then myself. We are really excited. This Andrea is going to be a part of the podcast on a very regular basis moving forward. She's going to have at least one appearance a month, and we're really excited for her to push uh, some of her specific areas of interest, her special knowledge. If you don't know about Andrea, you should go read about her because she was a professional cyclist for a while and then just decides, oh, I'm going to go run a 304 marathon because that's fun. So she has so much experience in the in the high-performance world, works professional bike fitting. I suppose you could tell more about yourself, but uh, I, I just think that she's a great asset to the, to the roundtable and excited to have her as a part of this episode. Today, we have a very traditional outline of what we're going to do. First, we're going to go through a running shoe review. We're going to talk about the New Balance SC Pacer, Super Comp Pacer. This is a shoe that's kind of part of a new trend, new, I'm going to put new in quotations, new trend where we're seeing these companies put out these huge high stacked uh, racing shoes for marathons. And now we're starting to see shoes that aren't really low stack. They're still high in stack, but lower than these professional or these, uh, elite marathon shoes that have slightly lower stack have still have a lot of the same foams, same plates, just di- slightly different ge- geometries. And we're going to talk about kind of where do these fit? What's the purpose? That kind of thing. And then we're going to go into our main segment for the day, which is a biomechanical topic. We're going to talk about the importance of hip extension in runners. We'll talk about why is it important? What does it give the runner? What happens if you don't have it? What sort of compensations or uh, issues? What are some of the consequences if you don't? And we'll maybe talk about a couple tips into if you are lacking hip extension or if you want to check how you're lacking hip extension, we'll try to give some tips along the way. Before we do any of that, we are going to do our subjective, and since we're talking about the New Balance Super Comp Pacer, the question for everybody is, do you have a performance trainer or a workout shoe? What is it? Or if you don't have one, and you just do everything in one shoe, why don't you have one? What's your rationale for choosing just one shoe? And do you like working out in heavier shoes on purpose? So that's the question for everybody today, but we are going to go right into our Super Comp Pacer review. So, uh... Let's just talk a little bit about the general makeup of this shoe. Maybe somebody can give us some specs, and uh, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, at least on the men's side, the specs aren't super specific. But <laughs> um, we don't really right. have any heel or forefoot measurements, but I believe it's about 8 millimeter drop, and then 6.9 ounces, men's size 9. So that's all the information we got in fuel cell, midsole, and all that stuff, but... Yeah, I think the women's comes in just under six ounces, which is pretty awesome. Um, but I, I'm i not aware of any other uh, stack information either. Yeah, even when we reached out to to New Balance to get a little bit more information, they kind of hold hold the uh, information, the cards kind of close to the chest, which 
is respectable. We get that. I do think we're going to get some pictures into some of the other stuff coming up in the this summer, and we're excited to talk more about it. I think there's a couple other things that are apparent in the shoe. They have some branding on it, like Energy Arc, um, and that's referring to the shaping of the plate, where typically a shape might have sort of a spoon shaping where it uh, angles down towards the ground and then back up. This one has kind of a an arc effect where it's going starts in the in the heel it goes up a little bit and then back down and so we can talk about what their goals are with that and why it may or may not do something it kind of makes me think of cross-country skis kind of in the shaping where when they sit on the ground they're kind of arced and just the two ends are touching but uh yeah i'd say that's the other major info but let's talk about fit what's the upper like uh david i know you're down a half size because i sent you my pair but what would you guys say in terms of fit well, um, I can tell you, New Balance sent me a 10, and normally in New Balance shoes, I wear a 9.5, but I'm really glad they sent me a 10, actually, because the fit was one of the best-fitting shoes I've tried. It definitely has a little more room than a lot of performance shoes, but I think that made it work well for some of my longer workouts. Um, I definitely have a th- full thumbs width from like the front of my big toe to the front of the shoe. The width is great. Definitely have some room for toe splay. Um, The upper is this really nice thin mesh, and it's just so breathable. There's no, like, pinch points on the shoe anywhere. Um, I really, really enjoy running in this shoe. I just did a uh, 12-mile workout in it yesterday and was just reminded of how much I enjoy training it. And I'm now trying to decide (laughs) if I want to do my 5K next weekend in it. Or if I should stick with the Vaporfly, which we were talking about earlier in our uh, chat. Um, But getting back to fit, I would say the heel um, is pretty comfortable. You can see that there's a little bit of structure to the heel counter, but there's still quite a bit of flexibility there. Um, You can see the heel collar has a little bit of padding, but overall it's pretty thin. I mean, there's a reason the shoe weighs less than six ounces. The laces are pretty minimal, um, but I had no issues with lockdown. Um, The one thing that I didn't really like, which I'm going to try to show you guys, is you can see the tongue. There's no gusseting at all. And when you put it on your foot, there's a lot of material on the side. And I definitely found that it would fold up. So it took a little bit of finagling to just get the tongue to sit flat on the top of my foot. Um, I think I wrote in the review, like, if I was doing a triathlon, I wouldn't choose this shoe because your transition time would be a little bit longer, just making sure the tongue is in the right place. Um, But overall, great fitting shoe. I was really happy with it from that perspective. Also, just one more thing. As a, as the certified team tongue snob, I agree that the uh, yeah. the folding down on the sides was was present. I, I've gotten one run in this shoe, and then I sent him over to DJ. But And it's interesting, because you were up a half size. David was down a half size. So, yeah, what do you got, David? Yeah, I liked it overall. I think the upper itself is rather generous as far as width goes. I think it's like normal to slightly wide throughout, a little bit more forgiving for a performance-based shoe. Um, normally everything locks down real tight right around that heel, midfoot, forefoot. And being a half size down, I still didn't have any problems on the foot. Um, I mean, obviously length is going to be a little bit shorter, but the toe box is still pretty darn wide for like a 5K, 10K shoe. 
And then same with the midfoot and heel there. I agree with everything Andrea was saying. The tongue does kind of move around a little bit, so that could be that could be a little better. Um, it does kind of crinkle on itself as well. I didn't really have any problems with the heel. I think the heel is actually done pretty well. Like it's like semi rigid, but it's still flexible enough. It just basically holds its structure. You know, it doesn't really do anything much besides that. Really lets you do what you want to do. But there's still like a little bit of like external reinforcement as well. Just like a little overlay that creates a little bit of extra rigidity down through that region. Um, but yeah, I think the upper throughout was was pretty good. And the uh, I will say though, to second the triathlon comment, this upper holds water like a I, I'm not gonna say whatever explicit. Um, did a workout in the rain in these, and like they clogged up like the whole thing, like the cloth material, like really absorbed the water. And like the foam itself felt like it absorbed the water too. Like I would step and like I literally have water squishing out the side of my just like not running, like just walking in between oh, wow. reps and stuff like that. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like it felt real heavy trying to run like thirty second two hundreds in these at that point. But um, it rains in Southern California. Yeah, every once in a while, sometimes. <laughs> That's cool. So very rarely. But, did you did you do any? Any rain runs, Andrea, in this one? No, I think I actually lucked out that none of my workouts in it were in the rain. And I was really happy yeah, to looks... keep it looking nice. Most yeah. of my shears I ruin running in the <laughs> bad weather. Um, I think I did a couple runs where the roads were wet. And I didn't really have any uh, traction issues, but definitely not like running through puddles or in downpour. And that, that let's transition it to a little bit on the ride then. So how would you guys say being a quote unquote lower stack racing shoe, even though it's still, it's still robust enough. Uh, what did the shoe feel like? What's the foam like? Can you feel the plate? Uh, what do you think of the shaping of the plate? Anything involved with the ride? How, how was it? Overall, I think it's pretty balanced throughout for being a 5k, 10k shoe. I think the category at least traditionally has always been thought of as like pretty aggressive low to the ground firm snappy shoes sometimes flexible in the forefoot sometimes not uh just some examples that i pulled like this is even just between one generation i mean this is the adidas takumi sense 7 and so very low to the ground very very firm underfoot torsion system just kind of creates a little bit more rigidity through there but it still has a decently flexible forefoot up front that's kind of like the traditional build this is essentially the Nike Streak LT, but the Japanese version. So, um, but yeah, Japan Speed, same idea. Like semi-rigid forefoot, but everything else is really rigid, low to the ground, very firm EVA. That's kind of like what most people for a long time have thought of as a 5K, 10K slash cross-country even racer. And um, this takes a lot of that. I mean, it does have the carbon fiber plate. It does create a lot of rigidity throughout the platform, but it also gives you that really soft fuel cell midsole that um, some people love, some people don't. It's just it's just a soft foam, right? And um, But it basically integrates those two, and the shoe reminds me a lot of like the Gomeb Speed 6 or even, um, or even a baby between the Takumi Sense 7 and 8. Uh, the eight feels like it's still a little bit higher up as far as the Adidas shoe comparison goes. This feels like you can go a little bit longer in it. It's a little bit more flexible up front um, than, say, this one. Which one's the, more flexible? The Takumi Sun eight. Okay, compared more to the uh, okay. Fuel Cell um, or SC Pacer. So, um, 
does have a lot of rigidity through that platform, but overall the transitions themselves don't, I wouldn't call it aggressive. It feels pretty fluid throughout, even though it's still a flatter geometry compared to a lot of the high stack rockers that we're seeing. Uh, traditionally, I do think from a geometrical standpoint, those shorter distances, they tend to flatten them out a little bit more because they want you to really get onto that forefoot and load it and use your own torque to create forward movement. Um, with that said, though, it almost felt like it was a little overly stiff for me. And I don't know if that's just me not loading it like I should be loading it or if it just maybe isn't the shoe for me. You could still run fast in it. I have no problem with it. I think it's a great shoe. But for whatever reason, I don't really notice it until I'm really turning over. And I'm just not running that fast for most of the race for me. And so uh, I just think that forefoot, like I just don't quite load it enough, I think. I don't know. But I'd be really curious yeah, to see what Andrea thinks. But I think from heel to midfoot, it's it's done quite well. And same with the forefoot. I just don't load it as much. I would agree with a lot of what David just said. It is definitely a firmer shoe. Um, it was interesting for me testing it after testing the streak fly, which is basically like <laughs> the opposite shoe to the pacer. So the streak fly is oh wow. pretty flexible. And it's a, it actually performs more flexible than like I'm demonstrating here. It really feels like a traditional racing flat when you're running fast in it. Whereas the pacer, I mean, I can't bend that much at all. Um, so for me, the pacer definitely felt more like what I was looking for, for like a 5k or 10k super shoe. I like that it's firmer. I like the, the balance between the plate and the foam. I like that it's lower stack. I've raced pretty much every race from marathon on down in the past, let's say, year and a half in the Vaporfly, uh, the next percent. But like in 5K races in particular, the Vaporfly just feels too high stack, and it makes me feel like I can't feel the road, which is something that I like to feel. Now, the Vaporfly is plenty fast and you know i've been happy with my performance in it but as far as like being able to feel the ground when you're running faster i liked how the pacer felt and i actually liked how the pacer felt better than the streak fly i think because the streak fly was just too flexible for me it wasn't there's no plate you know it has that p-back shank in the midfoot um so overall, the pacer really checked a lot of boxes for me in what I would be looking for in like a 5K, 10K racer. I could definitely see myself running a half marathon in the shoe too. But then, you know, that makes you start thinking, well, would you be faster in a Vaporfly or an <laughs> Alpha Fly? Um, but as someone who's probably done, I think I've done five workouts in the pacer of like 11 to 12 mile length, I can definitely say it's comfortable for those distances. Um, I David mentioned that he felt like he couldn't, like he wasn't loading the forefoot enough. I don't really feel like I um, had that issue, but I would say like if I was racing a mile, then the pacer might feel a little too stiff, kind of like what you said. Like I think if I was racing a mile, I would use the streak fly. Like, I really think that's where streak fly shines is at those shorter distances. So really, really quick comment. Interesting. That it's interesting that you say like, and I, I kind of my assumption 
without thinking about this too much would be that, hey, you might want something that's stiffer for even shorter distances. But David alluded to this before. That doesn't always feel good. And that's going to depend right. on the person. Yeah. Um, we've. Nathan, what do you think? I kind of, yeah. I kind of interpreted David. I interpreted David saying that it, he felt it better at Got faster. It. Yeah, is that yeah. what you were saying? Like flip of that. Like yeah, David was saying, yeah. I didn't feel the plate oh, until okay. I went, or I don't know, feel maybe. The plate. But it's yeah. interesting because gotcha. the cushioning. I think I wrote this in the written. As I think I did. I forget that I write reviews sometimes. Um, <laughs> 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 but. Um, that it almost feels better when I slow it down a little bit. Like, I think that half marathon is definitely a wheelhouse that shoe can shine in, the SC Pacer. But it's weird because, like, yeah, I don't really feel like I'm getting much out of the actual plate itself until I turn over. And once I'm, like, really going, I mean, like, I don't know, like, 5K pace right now, give or take, is, like, 442 a mile. So, like, if at that pace, it's, like, it just feels a little off. But if I take it, say, 420 or faster, like it feels like it's alive again. But if I slow it down, I can get into a rhythm at, like, say, 515 or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what I was referencing, and I apologize for not entering this, is it in the past? <laughs> yeah. oh, all uh, those are, like, faster wait, than this my 400 This is going to be relative, right, for your, your individual <laughs> paces of, like, that's going to be David's really moving versus kind of some of the intermediate or slower paces for him, right, which you're going to have to – translate that to others i think david what i was referencing and i forgot to say this is we talked in the past how you said hey when you really want to go fat like all out fast sometimes having just a little more of that flexibility actually felt yeah. good to you correct totally so i'm curious to know what do you think and this is a really difficult question and the answer might be i don't know but what do you think is different between a shoe like the takumi sen that has rods and just has a little more flexibility versus something like the uh sc pacer in terms of why you think that might be opening up more at that faster pace yeah i think it brings a similar question to why there's the nike victory and the nike dragonfly as well when you take a look at the victory you have the carbon plate with the airpod right up front and then you look at the dragonfly and it's a p-backs plate both using zoom x but both very different shoes and so if you're looking at the victory you got some guys running 400s in that too you know, it's like 400, 800, 1500. And then like right at that 1500 is kind of where people start to make that decision. Like, do I go Dragonfly or do I go Victory? And then if they go longer, then it's pretty much always Dragonfly. If we're talking consistent with the Nike line. Um, I think there's something to going really fast that I like the rigidity underfoot, but I'm not running really fast in a 5K. You know what I mean? Like it's still like you're going fast enough to where I want some rigidity, but I don't want it so rigid that I can't. I don't know. I like having a little bit of flexibility so that I can get into some rhythm, but I don't want it so ri like I don't want it so stiff and so rockered that I feel like I can't push either. Which I get in a lot of like the higher stack super shoes. So, I think like the Takumi Sen I think did a really good job of balancing that because you do have a lot of flex like not a lot. I mean, it's still pretty rigid, right? Like but it it's definitely more flexible than the pacer and I'm, I haven't run in the streak fly, but I'm willing to say it's a decent amount stiffer than the streak fly just based on everything I've heard. Andrew, Andrea, how do you feel about that stiffness at different pace levels? That's a good question. And I mean, you know, Nathan like definitely shortened my <laughs> athletic history. I've been yeah, running sorry. since I was four. <laughs> so my, so my running background, you know, I, I grew up on the track, right? So 
I grew up wearing spikes. I ran the 800 and the 400 and basically the 300 hurdles in high school. So I come from a background where I'm used to like a very stiff shoe, right? When you're running very fast, but I never ran the mile or the 5k or anything on the track because I didn't like it. I thought it was too long, Um, but I did run cross country. So I wonder when it comes to like shoe preferences, right? It has to do with our motor planning patterns, right? And like my running background is different than like another person's running background, right? Like I've got certain movement patterns that have been ingrained since I was very small. Um, whereas someone who maybe started running in high school or only ran on the track or only did certain events might have a slightly different motor plan and that makes them prefer a stiffer shoe at certain paces or a more flexible shoe at certain paces. Um, you know, I'd love to go on the track and like try to rip a 400 and see what I can do right now. I haven't run Um, a lot of four in a while. (laughs) I probably should train a little for that. Let's go. All comers. Yes, for, let's for do my, that. For my peace of mind, please don't make it a 400. So, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fastest guy on the planet that can't break 60. When you when you talk about motor planning, Andrea, let's dig into that a little bit. Can you define that a little bit for people? When do motor plans, you know, on a day-to-day basis, when might we notice what a motor plan is? What What's going on? What do you mean by that? Yeah, we use motor plans for everything we do. So, for example getting dressed, how we put our pants on in the morning or how we wash our hair, how we prepare breakfast, walk the dog, any movement that we do, our brain has a pattern of recruiting our muscles that lets us do it most efficiently. So for example, if someone decided to go take ballroom dancing lessons and they've never done it before, you're probably going to be pretty bad at it at first. But the more you practice, the more fluid it gets, the less you have to, like, look at your feet or look in the mirror. It becomes more natural. And you could say that about learning anything, right? Like learning how to do a handstand or learning how to do whatever. So the brain always tries to help us find the most efficient way to do a certain movement. And the more we practice it, the more our brain refines that pathway. And, you know, not to go too far down the rabbit hole here, but a really cool thing about the brain is if there's damage to the brain or if there's damage to, let's say, a muscle or a nerve root, whatever, your brain can actually make new pathways to help you do the same thing, but using different neurons in a slightly different pathway. So when getting back to Nathan's question, um, Everyone who runs, runs a little bit differently, right? And there's no one best way to run. Like if you looked at the top marathoners, if you looked at the top 400 meter runners, there's such great variation in how they run, which is actually kind of surprising, right? Like you'd think the best people in the world would look similarly, but they don't. So for each one of them, they're movement history, let's say their running history, has led them to that particular running gait pattern that's most efficient for them. So, you know, you might see some marathoners who run crossing their arms across their body, and technically that's supposed to be less efficient. But if you forced them to stop doing that, guaranteed you would 
decrease their running economy and make them slower. So I think, and I think it would be a fascinating area of study, and maybe Matt can comment on it, but how a person's individual motor planning, running background, movement background influences how they run, the shoes they like. I think that's probably a big part of the future of running shoe selection. And and I can speak on that is that that's where things are going. So one of the uh, common article that we reference is McClode's study on individual responses to shoe stiffness. And we found is that again, it, it, there is no best way to design a plate. And that's the great, the great thing about now is we have a variety because people's individual movement patterns, right? How they are accomplishing the running stride, their joints and their bones, that structure is going to be different. So where they pivot off of is going to be totally different, which means different levels of stiffness and different types of stiff. I'm not going to say plates because there's more than one way to create stiffness in a shoe, but where that's going to, how that's going to be optimized for each person is going to be totally different because our gait and our movement patterns are as unique, if not more unique than our fingerprints, um, this is very common for especially PT students who, as they start going through gait analysis in their early years, all of a sudden start picking up their classmates, not by how they look, but by how their movement patterns are. And that's something that happened to me. I'm like, oh, that's Tim. All right. That's coming. And like, I can't even see him yet because my vision's so terrible. I can tell his movement pattern. So, um, yeah, it's going to it's going to vary. And that's where, you know, another s- group of studies we reference is Ben O'Nig. Dr. Ben O'Nig's t- talk about about the. Uh, preferred movement pathway that's just it's going to be unique to each person and footwear the goal is going to be supporting that individual and that's why each shoe is probably not going to work for everybody and that's what we're hoping with doctors of running is to help educate people by going how can they find what works best for them because it may not work for their neighbor or their rival or their best friend it's a personal journey and so that's where and andrea i totally agree that the industry is going to probably moving towards how do we optimize this for the individual we talked to matt trudeau uh, the other week about how the, you know that same thing they're working on, you're going to see this more often. Yeah, and Matt Trudeau is kind of the the brainchild of preferred movement path stuff. He he worked with Benno too, but he kind of has been pushing that forward and how they design things at Brooks from a comfort standpoint and shoe matching to people is what's their preferred movement path. And they yeah, you can go listen to that episode. It's I forget the number, but it's a number of episodes ago with Matt Trudeau and he talks on that. I think one thing unique to just to bring up gait and biomechanics as well is that it changes and that to go back off of the motor planning conversation, I think our body's constantly making this unconscious anticipation, preparation and adaptation to the things that are going on in front of you while you're running. So whether it's a cross country course and you're going up a hill or you're going down a hill, you have to make a sharp right. You got to make a U-turn or you're just making constant lefts on the track. That matters. And that's just one piece of the puzzle. That's not taking pace into account at all. And so everyone has their own preferred movement pathway, but they also have the preferred motor plan for what they're doing. So like, even if you're taking it outside of running, if you take a look at, say, someone like Steph Curry going down and he's driving on a fast break, that's not the same way he runs when he's dribbling up the court. The You know, there's different demands for different responses. And so... No one cares about the Warriors, David. Uh, no one cares. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I really want the Warriors to win for obvious reasons. But when we're recording, this, the finals has not started yet, so we don't know anything. But uh, I really want the Warriors to win. 
on, on the topic of of movement patterns, uh, a really great article I want to shout out is from one of our previous guests is uh, Jeff Burns, who wrote a great article on the bouncing behavior of four minute milers. And interestingly enough, it was on the same talk at Luke looking at what movement patterns do they decide. And what was interesting is doing elite versus sub elite how they change their mechanics when their speed change was totally different. I'm going to encourage people to to go read that, but it's fascinating to go, you know, how do we decide to move and how does each individual decide to move? And that's, again, creates even more variability, which is really interesting. Yeah, because even just from personal experience, like that 5K I did a couple weeks ago, like the first 4,600 meters of that race, my mechanics were very, very different than the last 800. Andrew, I'm really curious. One of the things, this is totally off topic, and Nathan, tell me to be quiet if we were going too long. But, you know, always talking about like mechanical changes, the thing I always think about is a triathlete who's going from biking for, you know, if you're doing an, you know, an iron level of a competition, like you've been on that for 100 plus miles, and now you've got to suddenly switch to running. Is there research on that transition in terms of like what happens? And yes. So just briefly, you set up somebody on a triathlon bike differently than you would on a road bike. A person on a triathlon bike, their seat is further forward, which reduces the recruitment of their hamstrings when they're pedaling. So that when you get off the bike and start running your marathon or whatever, you your hamstrings aren't already taxed from riding the bike 112 miles if you're in an Ironman. Um, but getting back to motor planning, one of a big part of any triathlete's preparation is doing a lot of brick workouts where you do a bike ride and then you immediately go run because, again, you're trying to make that motor plan. OK, teaching your body, how do I run when I immediately get off the bike? So I as we see with sports, with, you know, any skill based sport. The more practice you get, the better you are. And a big part of that is you're improving those neural pathways that help you do whatever movement you're trying to do. I'm going to bring it back to the SC Pacer for one more question, and then we'll move on to our next segment. But one of the designs that is being kind of pushed forward by New Balance right now is the energy arc design and shaping of the plate. Do you guys have any thoughts on that design? Do you think that there's potentially, we we hopefully will learn from them in terms of, I'd, I'd love to talk to their researchers and their, um, you know, their department there to see kind of what they've been finding. But do you think there's anything there uh, from a performance standpoint in the shaping of that plate? Potentially. Um, there's another shoe I can't talk about that has a very similar plate geometry that I like a lot. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> classic David, just like, oh yeah, I'm going to compare it to the shoe no one can know about. <laughs> but yeah, why not? I mean, depending on how rigid the plate is, but if there's a certain flex you can get while you load it from the heel into the midfoot and then it spoons off, there's like, I mean, there's a potential for potential energy and then creating kinetic energy. So just from a physics and torque standpoint, in theory, there's a possibility it could work, but I think the person's individual biomechanics would dictate that and the interaction with the rest of the shoe because they could very easily fight you as well. So it's, it's depending on where you're landing on that apex, you know? So do you have any thoughts on that, Andrea? Um, yeah, I would really like to know more anything about New Balance's research on energy arc, why they decided to use it. 
um, what properties of it led them to put it in the pacer. Because I agree, they must have seen something in their research that told them that that shape was better for like the 5K, 10K distance. But what is it? I can't really say when I was running in it that I felt like the plate was really springy a main yeah like the part that made me like the shoe um and as we know from other research the plate really doesn't contribute that much to improvements in running economy it's the foam that provides more energy return so again let's see what new balance has to say about energy arc and why they actually decided to use it. And we are planning to have them on the podcast, so we awesome. know we'll get to ask them questions. So we'll, <laughs> Great. we'll if you have questions for New Balance, <laughs> drop them below if you're on YouTube and we can we can ask them the questions. I think the energy arc from what I saw from the running event and some of the kind of they're gonna carry that through even their higher stacked racers too. So I think that the shaping of the plate will carry through. So it will be curious to ask them ask them those questions. When they talk about the shaping, you look at it. I kind of referenced it before. It does look like a cross-country ski where you're kind of like bouncing into the... The idea would be you flatten it out, and then as you're coming off the ski, it provides some energy return up. And it'd be curious to see if they've found that actually happens with a plate sandwiched in foam. But any other final thoughts on the SC Pacer? Yeah, I, I guess with how rigid the plate is, like Andrea was saying, I didn't really notice that much plate involvement per se (laughs) i mean besides the fact that it was a really rigid shoe (laughs) um i mean everything felt pretty balanced i actually i really liked the shoe i don't want it to come off like i didn't but uh just i think it was a little too you know rigid in the forefoot for me personally but um those that are sensitive to plates this still might work fine like i didn't feel it because of the plate it was more just the stiffness could you guys warm up in it fine and cool down or was it one of those oh it's too x y or z okay no it's great at slower paces i i could use it for the whole workout no problem cool i haven't i have not tried it yet so suppose i might have a pair coming or i might not um this is something i'm always curious in especially racing shoes right because they start the uppers are really thin for those that might have some achilles or heel sensitivity how's the heel counter it's very nice. No issues. Very nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I am sensitive to heel counters, and it's just, it's there, but it doesn't impinge anything. There's not a ton of padding, um, and, you know, it has the little elf heel that New Balance puts on uh, uh, other shoes, but that's completely not noticeable. Well, let's transition to our next segment. We're going to be diving into biomechanics again. And today we're talking about something you may or may not have thought about, depending on where you're at in your running nerdism. I don't know if that's a if that's a phrase, but uh, we're that going to be is talking, now. It is now. <laughs> we're going to talk about the importance of hip extension in runners. So to start this topic off, uh, Matt, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what hip extension is in general, and when do we see it in the running cycle? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So hip extension refers to when specifically at the, at the hip joint. So there, it's a multiplanar joint. It can do a bunch of different things. So flexion is when the hip joint, so femur especially, comes forwards. Extension is when it travels backwards. Normal for hip flexion, again, most runners don't ever get to this level unless they're doing some crazy trail run, is about 120 degrees for flexion. Hip extension is kind of argued where the normal amount that we're taught in school is about 20. 
how many people actually get that 20 degrees i'm sorry how many people so that's again if you're this is your pelvis the hip the femur is going to come back behind you right supposedly it's 20 degrees how many people actually get that might be a different story especially with how much we sit um, but that's a whole nother conversation why it's really important is that as your as your foot in the lower extremity are traveling behind you you got to have enough range of motion at the hip to really get into a position where you can push off from your ankle and push you forwards here if you don't have enough hip extension and you toe off you're going to be more going upwards which that's going to that may cause you to bounce more may not be the most efficient but we're going to dive into more about what too much or not enough hip extension may may do for you. Yeah, and I think you you hit it important just to shape it for everybody. If somebody's doing marching for like marching band, that's moving into flexion. The opposite of that will be extension. You use it as you're doing push off in the back of of your of your running cycle. When you're running, do do people run with the same amount of hip hip extension regardless of what they're doing, or does uh, the type of activity running activity you're doing dictate how much extension you use or need? Yeah, like you know, like Andrew was talking about earlier in terms of motor motor programs and our movement patterns, it's going to vary depending on your speed. You know, if you're doing a shuffling run, your you know recovery jog, or you're you know like me this morning where my legs are really trashed, I'm doing the the old old man jog, which ironic is my normal movement pattern most of the time. This is normal, Um, right? (laughs) Yeah, that is normal. Did we we haven't posted the video yet of, of you looking at me while I was warming up and you're like does that is that painful I'm like no I think I did it yeah, anyway. I think I put it in the Sorry. story that day but it's Got gone it. forever oh, that's right uh, no um, back on track finally um, you're gonna use different amounts depending on the motion you have available and what you're doing right so if you're running faster your your stride may depending on the person may lengthen so you might need more hip extension there if you're doing you know running very slowly you might have a shorter strategy, you might need less. So it's going to depend very much on terrain, speed, personal factors, lots of things. Cool. And why, you, you touched on it a little bit, Matt, but Andrea, maybe if you want to speak to the ideas of why do we use it and kind of what, what functions does it have in the running cycle? Um, so when your foot hits the ground, like when at initial contact, Your glutes actually turn on. So your glutes are your butt muscles. Those are your main hip extensor muscles that are going to help you get your leg from that forward kind of marching position to the back, like kicking position. So interestingly enough, your glutes actually start firing while your foot is still in the air. And that's a good example of something called muscle tuning, where your brain is actually anticipating the impact that your foot is about to make. So your glutes fire before your foot hits the ground to help you absorb some of that impact of hitting the ground and then immediately helping you push back or push off and extend your leg. Um, One of the other important functions of hip extension is actually to create a stretch reflex in your hip flexors. So as you push off and your foot comes off the ground, your hip flexors are in a stretched position. And that essentially makes your hip like a slingshot. So as you push off, that stretch response is going to help to pull your leg forward while your foot is off the ground. So not only are your hip your hip extensors, your glutes, active in the pushing off phase when your foot is on the ground, they set up your hip flexors to act like that slingshot to help you come back forward. 
Um, interestingly enough, when you look at like the total energy use throughout the running gait cycle, only about 15% of energy is used during swing phase. The rest of the energy, 85%, is when your foot is on the ground. And we can get a little bit more into later maybe some things that people have been taught incorrectly about what to do when they're running and what you could maybe focus more on to help you run more efficiently and smoothly. I think you pointed out a lot of important things there, but I think one of the distinctions you kind of talked about was active hip extension and passive hip extension. So uh, I, I have this with, with students that I work with, physical therapy students, when they talk about, you know, uh, oh, what this is elbow extension, but you're using your, or you're using your biceps for elbow extension, kind of that combination of muscles need to be able to stretch. They need to eccentrically contract to control the movement. So you kind of, you, you talked about how the glutes, the hip extensors help bring the hip into extension and bring you there. But as you move into hip extension, something is happening in the front and that's stretching the muscles in the front of the hip. I think one of the, you talked about the stretch reflex and part of why that happens uh, has to do with like the, his, um, kind of the, the makeup of the tissues of tendons and of muscles and our tendons and muscles has, have some level of, um, elasticity to them. So they're mainly made of different types of collagen and then some kind of elastin and there's not a ton in there, but it's kind of like, we're not as elastic as a rubber band where when you stretch it, then it re recoils right away or a spring that when you push it in, it comes back exactly. But when you put a stretch through a tendon, it increases the force generation capacity of that muscle, even if you don't do anything. And that's what you're talking about with that kind of slingshot where you bring the hip flexors into extension. It activates some of that passive uh, elastic nature of those to drive the hip forward as you as you propulse off the foot. And uh, that has to do viscoelasticity. If you want to nerd out on that, you can look up viscoelastic properties, stress strain curves. There's lots of things that you could dig into. But that's part of that process of getting the hip into extension. And then you don't have to use a lot of energy if you're doing it right because you've activated passive structures to do the job for you versus having to like lift your foot forward. Um, you referenced things that people have been told wrong. Why don't we go there right now? We can always circle back to other things. What, what kind of things do you think people have been cued on that may not be the most accurate? Well, I think one of the most common is kicking your butt when your foot comes off the ground. So, yeah. <laughs> so we've, I mean, I've probably spent, you know, months of my life over my lifetime doing butt kicks as part of running trails, right? And those can serve a good purpose for dynamic mobility. But when you're actually in the act of running, you should actually not try to kick your butt because the natural... Uh, spring-like and passive movement that occurs when you push off, your heel is going to come up to your butt anyway. Basically, your lower leg is going to fold up whether you think about doing it or not. So if you think about doing it by using your hamstrings to help you kick your butt, you're just wasting energy because you're forcing something to happen that would have happened on its own anyway also puts you at risk for like overworking the hamstrings so the hamstrings function really is when you're pushing off that power from the push-up as well as the eccentric like reaction the stretch reflex from the hip flexors that's going to pull and bend that knee anyway right for efficiency's sake the hamstrings function is really to slow down the tibia tibia as it comes forward toward the end so if you're already overactivating, you're using that more than necessary you've already fatigued it out 
and the most the hamstring is going to work are later in the swig phase, not earlier. Right. I think, I think additionally to that too, you know, you want to move into hip flexion <laughs> during the swing phase mm-hmm. and hamstrings are hip extenders as well as knee flexors. And so you're creating co-contraction around a joint that you, that's basically just fighting yourself, uh, you, to achieve a motion that's going to happen naturally. Any others, any other cues you feel like that have been thrown out there that may not be accurate? Um, I've definitely been told at various points in my running life that you're supposed to paw the ground when your foot hits the ground. <laughs> have you guys <laughs> heard yeah. of it? Yeah. So I, when I uh, go into that recently, I felt I'll, I'll Andrew, I'll let you go first, but I had a moment where I felt really dumb during my dissertation when I was studying like what part of the stance phase of master's and I should be looking at. And then I realized that whole paw thing. I was like, oh, that yeah. does not work. <laughs> no. <laughs> go first. Go first. And I'll, I'll add in how I was like, wow. Yeah. Why? That does not work. <laughs> so um, another cue that I've been told in the past, and I'm sure that others have been told in the past, is when you're at like the end of swing phase and your foot is about to hit the ground, you're supposed to take your foot and imagine that you're pawing it, like almost grabbing the ground with the front of your foot. And I think the idea behind that is to help you activate your hamstrings more at initial contact. But again, that's going to happen without you thinking about it. One, so there you're wasting energy. And two, pawing the ground makes you overstride which can really, it increases braking force, it throws off your center of mass, so don't paw the ground. It's not necessary. <laughs> yeah, I, I when I think of running, I mean, I still consider hip flexion and hip extension an arc of motion, and running as a motion is very cyclical, and if you look at someone who does it well, it looks like a nice, pretty circle. They're not overstriding, they're not their hips are going back, but they're not going so far back they can't control the motion. And so they're using that stressed reflex. They're using that circular motion, getting that heel up to the butt, getting that limb to advance, but not so far that they can't bring it back underneath them and repeat that process. And so one of the drills that I like to do a lot to practice that cyclical motion, it's a little bit of a hybrid of a butt kick and a C-skip. And so I think there's still some merit to some of the pawing neuromuscular activation things, but it's not so much pawing from the hamstrings as much as it is practicing the cyclical motion and changing cadence. And so like taking a couple stuff like where you are jogging and then like say you take a step on right, left, and then when you come back on that right, you snap it up but you don't snap it up like a butt kick where you're bringing it straight to your butt. You're getting a little bit of hip extension. You're rising that heel and rotating it up forward like you would in a stride, like as if you're about to go into a sprint or something like that. Getting it up over and then kind of snapping it down in front of you, but not not snapping it like you're trying to grab the ground per se. It's just a quick, fast stride. And then you catch yourself and then you go one, two, and then the next one, pew. And you repeat that process. And so you do that for maybe three, four cycles and then go into a stride. And so you're practicing neuromuscular adaptation for the circular motion that is running rather than a straight paw or straight leg bound or a B skip or things like that. Not to say that they don't do anything from a neuromuscular standpoint. I think there is still a lot of merit in some of these drills, but... Um, I think it is important to practice that cyclical nature that is running. I think another another realm of what all of these drills can be for 
and how we can think about them is simply to warm up the structures and the muscles, like get through the range of motion that's required, maybe even a little more, so that when you go open up for a workout, it's not the first time the muscles have done the job, or at least part of the job. It's a really great way to warm up. So we've talked... Yeah, and same goes for no, go oh, sorry. Uh, same goes for strides before the run or race or workout, because it's like the last thing you want to do is start the workout or race and be like, "Oh crap, <laughs> like my legs aren't ready for this." <laughs> so, regardless of physiologically, you are ready for it, you know. So if you get the strides in, get used to do a couple pace checks, get your legs warm and ready to roll, so that way when you do do enter the race and or workout your body isn't freaking out in that first 100 to 200 meters because that nervous system will give you a lot of different signals over the next mile and that might change your race day so right the whole purpose of a warm-up well i mean there's many purposes but you're not going to feel great during your warm-up because you're getting all of that junk out in the warm-up so you don't feel bad during your race right like at the most basic level that's the point of a warm-up so yeah, you don't want to just roll out of bed, go out the front door and start doing a tempo workout or something. You want to ease your body into it. And as I'm sure Matt can tell us, as we get older, that's even more important. Yeah, it takes a little longer to warm up and that making sure you've got enough blood flow and got the, the engine going a little bit is really, really important i think a lot of younger individuals get away with that but i would encourage them to still think hey in terms of longevity you might want to consider taking that extra time just to make sure everything all cylinders are ready to go and part of that change is the change in the composition of our muscles and tendons as we age so i kind of referenced that there's collagen and then there's elastin and there's also proteoglycans which have water compounds within help hold water within your your muscles and tendons and stuff the amount of elastin and proteoglycan changes as we age, which is why it does take longer to get things warmed up. Um, that's one of the reasons. That's that's a piece of the puzzle. So, so we've talked a little bit about what is hip extension, when do we use it, why it's important. Uh, let's talk a little bit really briefly. Let's try to keep this part brief. How do we measure hip extension and why might people be lacking hip extension, uh, both statically and dynamically? This is a very complex question so one of the ways in in pt school you're taught classically is the thomas test right so if somebody's laying supine on the table they do that classic where one leg's up and the professor always looks super cool because they got one leg on them and they get the leg down like oh this is so i'm so good at this so i'm just kidding i that was just a, a significant memory so every time i do the thomas test like make sure you look cool while you do this um but generally that's that's one way of measuring it um Typically, that doesn't always correlate to how much people use, right? Because just because you see a passive range of motion. So again, you're letting the leg just fall, right? So supposedly they're supposed to relax. There's several muscles that can restrict that motion. So you can, you've got to see which one might be, might be restricting that. But the problem is static measurements don't always translate to dynamic measurements. Oftentimes, it's a little better to look at this doing uh, gait analysis or biomechanical analysis, and you'll generally look at the angle of the trunk and pelvis versus the femur and going how, you know, when that when that leg gets behind them, at what point do they get that maximum motion? So how we measure it statically versus dynamically, biomechanically can vary a little bit. And what's so difficult about hip extension measurements is that the hip is not this isolated joint. The hip is connected to the pelvis, which is connected to the lumbar spine. 
And those joints work in concert with each other all the time. And so your ability to isolate the pelvis and the low back from the hip is really difficult to do. Uh, even, even in controlled clinical settings, it's really easy to have compensations. Let's say you were watching somebody running and it looks like their leg is... Or a, I mean, a dancer might be a better example. Somebody's doing like an arabesque or some other movement behind them. Um, and it looks like their hip is in 90 degrees of extension. But really, their low back is extended, which translates to pelvic anterior rotation, which pairs to what looks like hip extension. And so if you're looking at it by yourself, I think it's just really hard to do. To know, are you achieving the right amount of hip extension? I think that if you're going to look at a runner having the ability to look at pelvic tilt uh, to get a general idea of what sort of uh, pelvic tilt, meaning kind of forward and backward rotation of your pelvis. And if you're looking at someone from the side, if you can get an idea of what sort of pelvic tilt they're getting, that can give you a clue into how much lumbar extension they're in, which then can help balance out how much hip extension are they getting or how much are they just getting from their back? Um, Any other thoughts on that stuff? When it comes to gait analysis, I really encourage people do. I mean, you can train your eyes to do this, but you really need to use video software because the research suggested that our eyes really can't detect anything if it's less than like five to 10 degrees. And sometimes even then it's not great. So it's and the speed of which a lot of the stuff is happening you need to video it and slow it down. And the, you know, most the majority of like phones out there have this capability, right? Where you can just video something and then just slow it down. Use that. Don't just use your eyes because that's not super valid or reliable. Yeah. And I think some of this roots back to, to some of the individual characteristics of gait and what makes each person unique. I almost check to just make sure they're getting hip extension first. Like, let's make sure that leg's getting behind you and make sure you're not doing any funky things in order to get it behind you, such as, you know, like rotating out, using excessive motion elsewhere, whether it's through the hips, through the thoracic spine, doing anything to kind of slingshot that leg forward or create circumduction or some other things where the leg is rotating away from you in order to clear that joint space so you can actually get that leg behind you. So I think I start there. You know, it's like, let's just make sure we have it (laughs) before I quantify what is quote unquote enough, you know, and make sure that you are running okay first. Right. As I agree with what Nate mentioned, that you have to look above the hip joint at the pelvis and at the lumbar spine. Um, You need to look at SI joint alignment, sacral alignment, lumbar mobility, When you're walking or running, there's what we call reciprocal mobility at L5 and S1, so your lowest lumbar vertebrae in your sacrum. So if L5, S1 doesn't move normally, it's going to greatly affect your lower extremity mechanics when you're running. So you can't just do the Thomas test on somebody and say, oh, they're lacking extension. I think one of the biggest drawbacks of the Thomas test in particular for runners is When you do the Thomas test, someone has to be in a posterior pelvic tilt. You're flattening that curvature in the lower back. But that's not how we run. We want a little bit of anterior pelvic tilt for running. If you run in a posterior pelvic tilt, you're going to have a lot of problems. So the Thomas test is really a quite limited test for everybody. But in particular, it is a very limited test to use on runners because that's just not how runners use hip extension. But for PTs listening to this, 
you've got to look at the pelvis and the lumbar spine. If you're only looking at the hip, you're missing out on less than, you're not getting even half of the picture of what's going on with your patient. Because as both Nathan and Andrea mentioned, this is not just coming from the hip, right? So th- these are dynamic motions. These are whole body motions, right? The whole the whole limb is acting as a spring. So a lot of the comments that you'll hear from different people, like, "Oh, you need to isolate this muscle." And it's like, okay, maybe if you're if you're having some trouble initially with that, but then you need to integrate it back into the whole thing because we don't work in isolation. So that's what's always interesting to me is should you know people talk about hip extension, hip extension, but then. Andrew, you're mentioning it. Yeah, it's also coming from the ability to rotate your pelvis and also mobility of the lower lumbar spine. Should we even call that when people refer to how much your legs getting behind you? Should we even call that hip extension or should that be just be a general like lumb, like hip lumbopelvic extension? How should we quantify? That's a question I'm actually hitting right now. I agree. That's also why I was like, I kind of just focus on like, let's get some like make sure you just have it like getting behind you (laughs) rather than like. Is, is it getting behind you? And are you doing it in an efficient manner? You know, because obviously there's multiple joints. I think this is the- For the PT students, don't freak out. Yes, you need to learn the Thomas test. You got to have a foundation first before you start going here. Yeah. Don't freak out. It's not totally useless. Start somewhere. <laughs> Sorry, PT instructors. <laughs> That's okay. That's what they get. I think one other concept, and again, we might be, uh, I might be taking us down too big of a tangent, is to get the leg behind you when you push off and going into swing phase. Um, It's not just your hip that helps you achieve that, right? Your knee and your ankle and your great toe help you get there too. So this might be something that Matt is looking at, but you could talk about like total extension motion um, and what percentage contribution the spine, the pelvis, the hip, the knee, the ankle the great toe are contributing to that. And I would place a sizable wager that there are probably percentages that indicate that someone is more likely to get particular injuries than others. Um, I, Matt, I would love to know if uh, there's any research already in this realm or if anyone has looked at this topic. What do you yeah, when it comes, I'm I'm blanking on the exact term, but this is done all the time in biomechanics literature. Um, I don't. It's not a. It's not a. I think it's a joint power calculation where, based on movement and ground reaction forces, you can figure out how much uh, a person is utilizing each joint. Right, each muscle is going to be different. Right, because then you need EMG and some other factors. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's some early evidence about going. Yeah, if we see you using this successfully, this might put you at this but you have to realize the injury risk literature especially in running is really fuzzy it's really early so to answer your question yeah they're the beginnings of it but we need a lot more research for us before you make any decisive conclusions i mean i think a common biomechanical characteristic that we see not just with running but any movement pattern is the body will steal motion where it can right so If somebody is limited in extension, let's say at the hip, pelvis, lumbar spine complex, there, there's our term for that, um, then somebody may be more likely to rely on excessive plantar flexion to help them achieve push off. And we know about lever arms, right? So basically your hip or your pelvis somewhere in that area is the pivot point for the limb when running. So 
a muscle that is closer to that pivot point is going to have to produce less force than a muscle that is further away from that pivot point to control that joint, right? So ideally, you would want the gluteal muscles, which are closest to that pivot point or joint, to help you get your leg behind you, as opposed to, say, your calf muscles doing extra work to help you get your leg behind you. So it may be that people who lack sufficient lumbar, pelvic, hip extension and overuse their plantar flexors might be more likely to get Achilles tendonitis or calf injuries. But again, I think that's a, <laughs> this is perfect to transition to the next section, which is on that topic of if you don't have enough hip extension, what areas might get stressed out? And this is actually one of the things I'm looking at. Um, in master's room, especially as our stride changes, right, and our mechanics change, what happens? So Andrew hit that on the head. If you don't have enough hip extension, you're going to have to find it from other places. So obviously, you got to start locally first before you start making crazy, you know, it, going beyond certain areas. So pelvis and lumbar spine are going to be two areas that are going to deal with some of the stresses potentially first, right? So if you don't have enough motion at the hip, you're going to need more anterior pelvic tilt. You're going to need more extension at your lumbar spine. If somebody doesn't have the resiliency in those areas, that might be a place that might get stressed a little bit. The other area where I'm seeing right now is that if you don't have enough hip extension, you are going to toe off really early, right? So instead of, and I mentioned this earlier, optimally from a physics standpoint, you want to be able to get that leg behind you enough that you can control it, but also enough that when you toe off, it pushes you forwards rather than up. If you toe off early, right, your your calves are going to be working way harder because now you're going directly against gravity rather than kind of working with a little bit and bouncing forward. So there's some early evidence that might stress the Achilles tendon, the calves more, which again, you know, this is an issue with the hip, but it can stress other things down the chain. Same thing with the knee joint, right? We know that the more the more forward your knee goes over your toes, and I don't want to freak people. I know there's the knee forward to toes guy out there, knee, um, knee over not toes everybody, guy. knee over toes guy. Sorry, um, that but you know the more your knee comes forward over your toes when you're loading it, there is more stress on the patella and the kneecap. You know that's not going to be an injury issue for everyone, but for people that may not have tissue resilience there. If you don't have enough hip extension, your foot's going way behind your knee and you're loading that knee in a position that may not be optimal because you're not getting what's called triple extension, which I'm sure Nathan can speak about since he's written about that. Yeah, um, for sure. I th- well, and even before that, I think you just referenced something that's important to talk about, and it's when does the lack of hip extension become important for a runner? And it's not for everyone all the time, but I think it matters in two realms. One is if you're having pain of some kind. You have to have that evaluation to see at what in pain. We, we talked about a couple areas, one being potentially the calf and Achilles, which it's funny how the hip could can play a role in the calf and the Achilles. We, and the other one is talking about the low back and the pelvis and the SI region. And so this this conversation becomes important when you're having pain or discomfort it also becomes important when you want to run efficiently because of how important hip extension is in propulsion and running in creating efficiency and speed within your running and so if you're sitting here like oh shoot do i have enough hip extension you don't have to freak out it's <laughs> it's probably important if you're developing some kind of soreness or we in we can't always say prevention but there's a there's a possibility that having appropriate mobility and a good motor pattern can help with injury prevention just to touch on the other directions, you talked about how the calf can get overstressed. 
when if you don't have a lot of hip extension, whether that's from the hip joint itself, like we talked about in a previous episode recently, David kind of mentioned it, uh, talking about hip joint restrictions themselves around the bone. If you're having muscular tightness or if you have a lack of a motor pattern that allows you to move there, if you still get your leg behind you, you're going to have to get that motion from somewhere. And like we just kind of referenced, it might result in anterior pelvic tilt, which is lumbar extension. And it, that can lead to a lot of compression in the lower back within the joints that, that get compressed as you go into lumbar extension or bending backward. And again, that's not an issue unless you don't have the tissue resilience to handle it. And so if you are having kind of lower back pain associated with your running, this could be one of those factors that your therapist would look at to kind of see, hey, do you have appropriate mobility at your hip or are you overusing the motion in your low back, uh, especially that lower lumbar region, to steal it uh, because you don't have enough. And for whatever reason, some people can handle having lots of lumbar extension and they never get injured and don't ask us why. Because Well, it's probably because certain people have the resiliency of those tissues to handle that. And others are not. So this is not a blanket statement going, hey, if you see this, this is what this means, which is the questions we get from a lot of students. It's no, you need to get a thorough history to understand what about this person might be contributing to this. And that's why a lot of the biomechanics literature about like optimal, you know, elite performance, a lot of it went out the window in the late 90s because like we're seeing so much variability. These elite runners are using so many different movement patterns. It just seems like each person is so unique. They have to, to really optimize your performance. You have to figure out what works for this person and where people can handle that motion. It's going to depend on them. And, oh, that's a very good point, Matt, that for PT students or PTs listening, we can apply to everybody, right? Like you can't protocol your patients. You have to evaluate each one as an individual. You have to look at, their biomechanics, their strength, their alignment, flexibility, what their goals are, and figure out what interventions will be most beneficial for that individual. And I know, I remember back in PT school, it you can't think that way because you're still learning. But the more clinical patterns you see, you start to learn that there's some variability between patients. You can start recognizing, oh, okay, I've seen this before this particular thing is going to help this person the most, or usually this combination of seven things is going to help this person the most. Um, that's but, a, per, that's a perfect segue yeah. though to, I know we, and you just, you laid it out perfectly because it's going to so be individual, but if you think, if we think globally, what are some strategies to work on gaining hip extension, whether that's passively or in our running? David, you mentioned some drills that you talked about. So we've talked, you can go back and listen to those, but any other, any other ideas for gaining hip extension? Yeah, I alluded to it in the previous episode a little bit as well. Um, there is a pretty good book on it with self-mobilizations and things like that. And this is looking more at the localized joint level, but becoming a supple leopard from Kelly Starrett gives you a lot of different self-mobilizations using the thick rogue bands where you can anchor it to something heavy. Granted, you have to have something heavy. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to find, actually, though. <laughs> it's hard. It is. If you have if you have a tree or something nearby, I suppose those bands are long enough to work on the tree. I have but, pulled a door um, gonna, off oh. the hinges doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I 100% believe it. Because the amount of torque you have to get on the joint, especially on the hip, is rather high, right? 
But you can put yourself in a position that allows you to create what in the physical therapy world is a joint mobilization. So if you ever have someone where they're laying you on your stomach, they're supporting the kind of by your knee a little bit above that by the thigh, and they're lifting up your leg and they're putting their palm right at the base of the buttocks there and they're kind of leaning into it and creating a mobilization on the hip. What they're doing is they're giving an anterior translation of that femur to help give that hip a little bit more extension. And so it's a little bit tricky, but there are ways where you can do that for yourself if this is truly a joint uh, limitation. But you can put that band basically right around like that proximal kind of like inner groin region and have it go straight behind you. And then you essentially get into a lunge position and keeping yourself relatively neutral up front, you, you lean forward not lean forward, hinge forward, like getting that hip forward and getting that hip into extension. So if I'm here, my leg's doing this. For the listeners, I'm like demonstrating like torso and body, leg, like you're kind of like kneeling here and then leaning forward and getting more hip extension while that band is around your thigh there, pulling it back. So that's a self-mobilization. You could do the same thing too with the hip distraction, going to the side and doing a couple other things. That was my things. favorite hand, but... hand description ever. <laughs> but any any others those were good david one i am not as good at david as a hand demonstration so i'll leave it be but in in addition to mobilizing the hip joint um perhaps reducing the amount of sitting that you do during the day our bodies respond to the conditions we put it under so if you're sitting for eight hours a day and spending 10 minutes a day stretching it's probably not going to be enough to balance out. So if you have a desk job, get a standing desk or a very desk where you can alternate between standing and sitting. Think about how your non-running life might be affecting your body and see what you can do to improve it. But I would also just remind people that hip extension is not just about the hip joint. So you do have to have a therapist analyze pelvic mobility, spinal mobility, um, something to also keep in mind, which not a lot of PTs talk about, is that if you have any sort of visceral issues, meaning like gut issues, or even like women's or men's health issues like menstrual cramps, that can actually limit your hip extension because of fascial and muscle guarding and spasm. So if you are sensitive to, let's say, gluten, then reducing gluten in your diet might actually, over time, improve your hip extension mobility. So don't neglect all of the non-muscular things that are in your abdominal region that could be affecting your running performance. And that's a great point because when I see runners and I see them lacking hip extension as part of my evaluation, and I ask them, what have you been doing? They've all been doing hip flexor stretching. It's not like that's right. not what runners do. I think it's the uh -huh. other pieces that don't get don't get touched. Yeah. I'm going to move on to our final question. Sorry, Matt. I hope you're I hope you're okay. Uh, but I our just final cry. It's fine. <laughs> our final question obviously has to do with shoes because we have to talk about shoes. Well, we don't have to. We like to talk about shoes. When we think about, about hip extension, what what did you say, David? Nothing. So talk about his hat. I do like that. So we hat. can talk about this hat. The fractal I, I hats know. have been no. really solid. They're super comfortable, in my opinion. Okay, uh, how how do we have an intersection between shoe types and hip extension? Are there things and components of shoes that either demand more or less hip extension that could be used as a tool? 
Yeah, Matt, you get to answer this one. I'm raising my hand. Okay, cool. Uh, we've actually gotten a ton of email questions about this recently. So different parts of the shoes are going to emphasize, may facilitate or inhibit different parts of the gait cycle. So I'm not going to worry too much about the rear foot because a lot of where you're going to get hip extension is as in terms of the gait cycle as you're from here forwards. So those people with really, really stiff ankle mobility, stuff like that, that can also be a reason you don't get a lot of hip extension because your body goes, hey, I just can't get this at the ankle. I either don't want to go there or I, I can, you know, because the farther you go back, if you don't have that mobility, it's going to stress a lot of the tissue and most people's bodies will go, nope, we're going to shorten this up. So if you've been stretching your hip flexors and it's not changing anything, another thing is obviously you need to work with somebody who can look at you from a whole body approach and going, where is your your body limiting this or why is it doing that? Sorry, now, before before you get into the shoes i think we should just re-emphasize what you said because we didn't have an example like this yet where something distally affects what happens proximally so you said the lack of ankle motion because you can't go into enough dorsiflexion you start advancing the limb before you let your leg go behind you because you don't have the motion for it so just remember it can go both ways things affect from top bottom and bottom up so all right go ahead though go ahead it does it does really go both ways i know a lot of people get stuck on going one versus the other it goes both, right? Bodies are not that simple. Sorry. Um, but something that can really push you. So if, let's say you have a lot of limited ankle mobility, right? We talk about how four, a forefoot rocker can help facilitate that motion forwards. Whether that's good for everyone is a different conversation, right? Because if you don't have enough hip extension, you have a shoe with a lot of a large forefoot rocker. That's going to, that's going to, again, start towing you off and allow you to potentially go into more of that motion. So for some people that have a little muscular guarding up top, a lot of uh, toe spring or I should say forefoot rocker can actually put a little bit more stress at the hip. For people that don't have that motion and need it, this can also help facilitate that a little bit. So it's obviously going to depend on them. So the front half of the shoe can make a big impact on how much or how little you can get into that. Um, I can't talk into that hip extension. Great. My brain stopped. Sorry. Rocker may demand more hip extension. If we were to put yes, it in one, thank you. in one sentence. Rocker, yes. Would you say then vice thank versa? You. A shoe that would be more traditional geometry, like the, I don't know, Velocity from Puma, would potentially demand less? Or would that mean it just puts more on what your body does? I think it's going to put more on what your body does because that's going to require... And somebody correct me if you have a different opinion, where... It, but it's a more traditional stuff. They're going to typically have more flexibility in the forefoot. So the forefoot rocker, we're really just talking about how much movement can we get here, right? So if you have a lot of flexibility up front and you have enough toe mobility, that might do the same thing, right? But it's it's just, again, we've seen a lot of people with the amount of forefoot rocker can definitely that regardless of whether it's a lot of flexibility here or a large forefoot rocker, you may get a little bit of the same. It's just going to depend on how people are using their individual movement patterns. What do you think? Is that nuts? Okay. Mm -hmm. Comes back to the motor plan. Any other thoughts on shoes? I think, I think for me, the biggest one in my head was the presence of a rocker that may increase demand. We've just talked about how if it decreases load somewhere, it'll increase it somewhere else. And I think part of that is what you see with rockers is it, pushes load up the chain and so it's active and passive demand potentially anything else um i agree with everything you guys just said i would also say that in addition to maybe demanding more hip extension range of motion it puts more demand on the hip extensor muscles particularly the glutes 
I know that with certain super shoes, I've the first few times I've run in them, I've definitely had some like glute high hamstring soreness after running in them because it helps you transition into terminal stance faster. So it's requiring greater force output from those muscles. Have your guys experienced that? Yeah, I've gotten a lot of patients who jump into some of the super shoes and the, one of the major things they'll complain about is hamstring soreness or irritation just because it's driving you really far back a lot further actually than frequently these muscles are active. And I've got a comment that I want to challenge all of you with and let you let you let, let me know if you think I'm nuts. So a lot of the biomechanics literature, so this nuts. is when I that's fine. So <laughs> You have stance phrase, right? That's where your foot's on the ground. You've got the first half, which is dealing with shock absorbent. You're landing on the ground. Your body's got to deal with the forces and it'll figure out how to turn them into propulsion. You've got the second half of stance phase, again, when your foot's on the ground, where you're really starting to push off and generate force. Now, those terms may not actually be the best because from one of the, some of the biomechanics literature I'm running, I'm seeing your hip extensors are actually most active during the first half of stance. And they tend to get way more quiet during the second half, which is when your calf is really doing most of the work. And that's where that becomes one of the most important propulsive muscles. So a lot of the challenge about going, hey, you got to, you know, I've seen lots of people talk about doing glute exercise into tons of extension that's supposed to improve your performance. That's actually not where they're super active, right? Their activity is mostly in that first half generating some momentum. And then it's supposed to go, hey, we go quiet, right? So that as you can start doing that stress reflex from the hip flexors, to start going the other way and pull you back where I, my kind of suspicion on some of that irritation might be what, and this is going to probably go into swing phase as well, that you're, that you're getting pushed into hip extension so quickly, especially with the aggressiveness of the forefoot rocker, or the plate, the foam, that your muscles are actually, those glute muscles and hamstring muscles are staying on longer into a very shortened uh, range of motion. And muscles tend to not do super well when they're either super short or super long. So I wonder if that might be one. I'm sure there's something else, but might be one of the things that's contributed to some of that hamstring uh, soreness and strains. What do you think? Is that nuts? I think makes sense to me. (laughs) And I think that was a classic Matt answer to what shoe is going to put more demand on hip extension. Phenomenal. (laughs) Well, this was this is why we have the sub twos, by the way, because it gets me to stop talking. No, this is wonderful. This has been a really fun roundtable to have four of us on here and to bounce some ideas off of each other. Uh, SC Pacer is a, is a shoe that you guys both have had success with, and it's fun to dig into some of the specs. If you have more questions about it that we did not hit here, you can refer to our full review on com. You can also drop questions below, and we will do our best to answer them. And we, I loved hearing everybody's thoughts on hip extension, and we love talking about biomechanics. It's what we do every day. So if you have any more questions for us in that realm, please feel free to drop questions below. If you're on YouTube, if you're listening, you can reach out to us at doctorsofrunningpodcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to the next episode. That was the most abrupt finish ever. I don't know what happened. <laughs> like, okay, Matt won't stop talking. Let's just end it here. <laughs>